The distance to the edge of the observable universe, the scientists say, is around 14.3 billion parsecs, which would take a pro- and it's expanding all the time, which would take approximately, they say, 46 billion light years uh, to travel that far. It would take less time if you were in the Millennium Falcon because, as all good theologians know, it's the fastest ship in the galaxy. Or maybe just nerds know that. But anyways, um, the point being, our minds, our minds can't really fathom and the magnitude of those numbers. I mean, they're massive. And there's a lot of continual debate, obviously, uh, in the scientific community, and a mix of really science and philosophy over origins. You know, how did we get here? Um, how do we explain the universe? Uh, but more so, more interesting, I think, than the question of how did we get here is the question of why are we here? I mean, I think I would be willing to argue that's what people ultimately care about more. Why am I here? What is the meaning of all of it? We are beings that crave meaning, and we crave fulfillment, and we crave love. We have these things that we search for. And, uh, and so today's reading is going to be from Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 15 through 23 in a couple minutes. But uh, before we get to that reading, because Paul really, really argues for the preeminence of meaning, and that's, that's what we're about to read here. But, but philosophically, every human has this deep inquiry about why are we here in that search for meaning. C.S. Lewis, uh, for those of you who are newer to the church, was a writer and a teacher at Oxford University, he used logic and philosophy to really argue for his journey from atheism to faith uh, in Christ. And he wrote a book called, uh, well, actually, there's a book called Mere Christianity, which is a series of teachings that he did on the radio in 1942 to 1944. It's a culmination of his teaching as he was kind of arguing this. And here's what Lewis said about this great universe that we, we wonder about. If the whole universe has no meaning... We should have never found out that it had no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know that it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. You see, we we seek fulfillment and we crave meaning and we want to be content in life. Every human wants to be content in life. Totally content. But this total contentment, this total fulfillment is constantly evading us. It's constantly evading us. Since, since we were born, there's been a switch in our hearts labeled worship that's been flipped on. And every human is craving this meaning, this love, this validation, this sense of purpose. Because we were created for worship, Paul argues, which we'll get to in a minute. And because we crave that, we, we, we chase it. And as a result of that, the fulfillment that we want out of life is constantly evading us because... As we all know, our, our, our lives have things that, 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 are, that are always catching on fire. As the great theologian Winnie the Pooh once said, sometimes the smallest things take up the most room in your heart. <laughs> right? That's what he said. Which I think is a great way of summarizing the great theologian Thomas Cramner, who is the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he said, he, he said this, our minds are always justifying what our wills are already chasing after because our hearts have already chosen. See, from a humanist point of view, the intellect is at the hierarchy of the human soul, right? My intellect, I'm a brain on a stick and I'm walking around trying to find meaning in the universe. Whereas what Cramner was arguing was that it's actually not the heart, it's not the brain that's at the hierarchy, it's the heart that's at the hierarchy that's driving everything that us human beings are doing. 
And so for the last four weeks, we've been looking at how does the gospel minister to us in our suffering, when our hearts are suffering. And this morning from Colossians 1, we're going to look at how the gospel ministers to our hearts when they're restless and searching. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And all things were created through him and for him. And he is above and before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, make peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's word. Now, as we read that text, Paul makes some great, massive, heart-fulfilling claims that we're going to unpack this morning. He uses the word preeminent. Some of your Bibles, that that passage of Scripture has a a heading, and it says the preeminence of Christ. For those of you newer to the church, when we talk about preeminence, it means surpassing all others, nothing is higher, first priority, supreme dignity. That's what preeminent means. And so Paul is saying Christ is preeminent. That's what he's saying. And so we worship Christ. How How do we do this, and why do we do this? You see, the Bible teaches, the breadth of Scripture teaches that the Father revealed himself fully in Christ. God the Father revealed himself fully in Christ. God the Spirit testifies of Christ, points to the truth of Christ. God the Son, we worship, and that honors the triunity or the trinity. The Father says, I'm going to reveal myself to you because God is abstract and we can't grasp that. So he incarnates himself in God the Son. And the role of God the Spirit is to draw us to that truth and draw our hearts to rest in what, what that all means. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. It's that the fulfillment that our hearts chase in life is found in the rhythm of worship and rest in Christ, who is the meaning and the source of our life. This is what Paul is arguing for. So we're going to ask this text three questions this morning. The first question is, why do we have an entire letter dedicated to the claim that Christ is ultimate? Because the whole letter of Colossians, that's the point. That's why Paul wrote it. I'm writing this entire letter to prove and to show you and to encourage you that Christ is ultimate. So first of all, why do we have a whole letter dedicated to that? The second question is, on what basis does Paul make that claim that Christ is ultimate? And then the third question is, how do we benefit from remembering that Christ is ultimate. So let's start with this, this, this first question of why do we have the entire letter? You know, there's, there's more Christ per square inch in Colossians than in any of, the, of Paul's other letters. And he goes to this great length to show Christ's supremacy and the supremacy of his grace and the implications of his grace, you know, that we celebrate every Sunday when we gather. And Paul wrote this letter because there was a huge threat to the church in Colossus. It wasn't a 
social, uh, it wasn't a threat of social rejection, like in Thessalonians that we had been talking about, they're social outcasts because they turned their back on culture, and so there's, a, there's suffering rejection in that way, it's not that. And it's also not, they're not suffering a physical rejection under Rome and under Nero's power, like we studied in First Peter, where the church is like physical threats because Rome is, you know, rising to this, you know, they're at this place of to- totalitarian power. It's not that, it's not an emotional or a physical threat. It's a soulish threat. You see, the, here's the, 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 the threat is that there's, they're going to have suffering of their souls, and Paul is really concerned about this. You see, if you don't eat, your body shrivels. And if you worship the wrong thing, your body shrivels. Your soul shrivels, I'm sorry. And so Paul is concerned about the shriveling of their soul. Coloss was this small cosmopolitan city. There was an ethnic blend. There was a religious blend. It was a lot like KW. A lot of different worldviews, a lot of different ideas about religion, a lot of different ideas about, you know, this kind of... It was a real mix. It was like our city. Paul wrote this letter from prison. Paul was never even at this church. This is actually a small house church. It's not even the size of Redeemer. Just to put this in context for you, this is a handful of Christians that God is so concerned about that he moves Paul to write this letter to this house church in Coloss. And it's incredible that we get to benefit from all of this. There was a young guy named Epaphras. He went, to, he went to Ephesus and he got saved under Paul's ministry and he went back and he planted the church. So Paul never actually even been there, but yet he writes this, he writes this letter. Why? All of this is grace on display. All of this is, just shows how much God cares for you. That here's this group of Christians, and they're about to get led astray by some ideologies and some philosophies, that their hearts are going to chase after something to get meaning, and it's going to let them down. And their souls are going to shrivel, because they're going to spend their entire lives chasing and worshipping something that's, that is incapable of satisfying their soul. So Paul writes this letter and says, hold on, I've got to dial you guys back to the preeminence of Christ. And the good news in all of this is that God's concerns are not based on human distinctions. It's not on how important are you or not, how big is the church or not. Well, it's a big church, so it's important. It's a small church. It's not relevant. Paul, God moves Paul to write to this small handful of Christians. The Spirit moved Paul to write it, and we're benefiting from it. And God sees you. If, if, Colossians 1, if anything, it, it's, it, it should encourage you, church, that it's like God sees you. And your confusion, and your pain, and your suffering, your frustration, your anxiety, your sorrow. He sees you. And he's coming toward you in, your gra- in, in his grace to minister to you in that. And so the threat was this blend of, of uh, it was this eclectic blend of, of Jewish legalism, Greek philosophy, and Eastern mysticism. But the interesting thing about it, because it, you know, it was a polytheistic culture, so they were kind of weaving these things together. But what they did was, they put it in a framework of Christianity. So they used... Christian terminology, kind of a form, it had a facade of Christianity, but the teachings were not Christian teachings. So most theologians agree that this was kind of the gateway to this idea that we call Gnosticism, which showed up later. But anyways, the point is this. They brought a bunch of different teachings together that were essentially saying, if you want to really want to be fulfilled, you have to go beyond Christ. We're not going to deny Christ. We're just going to say, if you really want your heart to come to rest, to be okay with what you've got to deal with on Monday, you've got to go beyond Christ. Christ is nice, but he's not preeminent. Oh yeah, that Jesus Christ guy, we think he's great. Let's talk about him, for sure. But when it gets right down to the brass tacks of having soul rest, you've got to go past Jesus. That was, that was what was going on. So Paul goes, whoa, stop the bus, hang on a second here. You're about to go down a road of chasing something. You're going to get on a treadmill 
of, of works and you're getting in a treadmill of chasing stuff and it's, it's, you're entering a marathon with no finish line. So I gotta dial you right back to Jesus. That's where the rest is. And so this is what he does. Uh, a man named James Smith, who I've just recently been introduced to, he's a professor of, theolo- of philosophy at Calvin College. He's a theologian. He says this, our wants, our hearts, our wants reverberate at the epicenter of the human person. And so what Paul is doing here in Colossians is he's, he's challenging the ideologies and he's challenging the idols in the culture that are promising what they can't deliver, which is rest. Getting back to the original argument of the, of the universe, right? If you come to the conclusion that you came from nowhere, you're going nowhere, you are the product of a purposeless process. And from an objective point of view, your life objectively has no meaning whatsoever. How does that lead you to a place of emotional and intellectual rest? Paul argued, Paul went toe-to-toe to the Greeks to go, hold on, guys. That's leading nowhere good. And he's making it, and we're going to get to a minute on his basis of the claim in a second, but this is why he's, he's so passionately writing this letter. And what's important to know, and what, why it applies to KW in 2016, you say, why are you talking about these ancient heresies? You just spent 10 minutes on this. Why don't we move on? Here's why it's important. Because sin is so unoriginal, it just has ways of rearing its ugly head in new and fantastic, you know, packaging. And so... That heresy didn't deny Christ, but it dethroned him because it gave him a place, but not the ultimate place. Our challenge in 2016 as the church is when we suffer, when we hurt, when we have pain, when we cry, when we, when we say, what is happening with my life, the temptation is the same for us. I'm not going to deny Christ, but I'm going to dethrone him. I'm going to chase after something else and say, that will give me rest. I'm not going to deny Christ a minute of throne. Oh, sure, I'm going to give Jesus a place. But I'm not going to give him the ultimate place. Because I don't think his grace is actually that powerful. I mean, I'm good to sing about grace. But I'm not sure I can actually rest in this grace. Worship him and come to this place of soul rest in this grace. This is our, this is our great challenge. So Paul writes to say, listen, there is a hope and a rest that is available for your suffering, wandering heart. And it's Christ alone. So what's the basis of his claim? So that's why he made the claim. That's why he wrote Colossians. But what's the basis? What's he basing this on? In verse 15, he says that Christ is the image of God. And, and he's basing all of this on the resurrection, right? Paul doesn't really have anything to talk about if there was no empty tomb. So let's face it, right? Paul is appealing to a point in history. He's, he's coming at philosophical thought. With a, he's grounding it. He's not saying that Christ is just a theological truth claim. He's saying it's a historical truth claim. 33 AD, suffering under Pontius Pilate, he died on a Roman cross, and then he was buried in a tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. You know, do your history homework, check it out, this isn't a legend, it's all happened. Paul appeals to that. And then he says, three days later, that tomb was empty. And when that tomb was empty, Rome got together with those religious leaders and said, let's just say they stole the body. But a body was never produced. And if you wanted to shut Christianity down in the first century, a great way to do it would have been to show up with a bag of bones. But that didn't happen. Because Christ's resurrection was true, and, and Paul accounts in his letter to Corinth that over 500 people saw the resurrected Christ right, at one time. So Paul is appealing to this, and, and, he's making, and then he says in verse 15, the image, he's the image of God. Now Adam, the first Adam, was made uh, in the image of God, but here Paul is saying he is that image. Right? Adam was made in the image of God, you and I are image bearers, we're made in the image of God, we're, 
you know, we're photocopies. But Christ is the image. He's the original. He's, he's the express perfection. That's why he's preeminent. That's why he says all that. Um, if you want to know what God is like, that's why you look at Jesus. That's why I say that. If we, God is 100% like Jesus. God is 100% Christ-like, if I could use that terminology, to say God is so vague, if I was to nail down and be like, what is it truly like? I look at Jesus. And so Paul is making this, this appeal, and he's saying that you know, God who you can't see is 100% like Jesus who you can see. And, you know, I had this funny moment with, with Nigel when Susan and I were out the other day, and, um, and I went to, to his school, and I walked into school, and as soon as I walked into school, some of the teachers looked at me and they said, oh, hi, Nigel's dad. You know, they'd never seen me before. But they just looked at me and they said, oh, hi, Nigel's dad. So we had this funny conversation about how uh, Nigel resembles me. But then when we were on the way out, uh, Nigel says, um, well, well, dad, that's because you look like me, right? Which is obviously, right? Obviously I look like him. But it was, it was so cute. Uh, we, you know, we can sometimes get this, get this thing backwards where we think that, you know, we're living our lives and God exists for us. And there's these things you've got to deal with on Monday that are like real things. It caused your heart to be, because life is hard. If you take long enough to talk to everybody in this room, everybody has stuff. And so sometimes we get this idea like, you know, God looks like us. You know, well, God, this is what I'm up to. And I'd really like you, you know, by 2.30 on Wednesday to take care of this. This is how we seem to relate to God. Paul flips the script. And he goes, he's the image. And then he calls him the firstborn of all creation, which, again, doesn't mean that, 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 uh, that Christ was made. It means that Christ is first priority, that, that same preeminence conversation, right? When the JWs knock on your door and they talk to you. Uh, you know, if you engage in conversation with them, you, you, you can, you get down to this point where, the, you know, ultimately what they believe is that God created Jesus, right? And I would talk to them and I'd say, well, I, I can't think of anything less gracious. And I mean, it's horrifying if God just created a man and said, you go and die on the cross and solve everybody's sin problem. That's horrifying. But if God came himself and dealt with my sin problem, that's glorious. That's grace. And uh, I was engaging with, with a guy in this conversation. And this is one of the texts that he turned to. Look, see, Christ was firstborn. I said, well, that doesn't mean he's the firstborn god god created him first it means that he's he's above everything he's preeminent that's the greek that's what it means and so he actually sent me a sermon that he that he spoke on genesis and he said you know i want you to look at this and so he blew it all out about how god created jesus and and at first i deleted it and i was like i'm not i don't have time and i was like you know what maybe I'll, he took the time to send it so then i sent it back with a bunch of things to kind of argue what i'm arguing with you right now that if christ isn't if christ isn't preeminent if he isn't above everything let's just shut the doors of the church and sleep in on sunday mornings my goodness i mean there's better things for you to do with your time if there's no resurrection seriously well, I mean, why why should anybody get out of bed and sit here and listen to me talk for a half hour every time I mean, that's not relevant unless jesus rose from the dead and it's his means of grace that comes and actually quiets our souls as the living christ ministers to us i mean that's the only reason that's the only conceivable reason anybody should get out of bed on Sunday morning is to have Christ preached to them if he's truly alive, which he is, which, which Paul was appealing to. And so that's why Paul uses all this language. In verse 16 through 18, Paul, Paul uses these great prepositions. He says, church, he says, we are by him and in him and for him. By him, in him, and for him. And so the Christian faith is not maneuvering God to our agenda. We've actually been swept up into his great agenda. We were created by him. We're, we are now united in him. We've been created for him. So Paul is going to the Colossians and he's saying, I know you guys are going through stuff. I know your heart is suffering. I know you have 
you know, reasons every day to look in the mirror and say, boy, if I could just make it through this day, it would be great. We all have those things in our lives. So where's the rest going to come from? Whether you're, whether you're a person who owns your own business and you've got a set of stresses there, whether you're a high school student and you're trying to figure out, you know, you're under that pressure because there's kind of that conversation in high school like, the decisions you make today determine the rest of your lives. You know, and you're just like, what? You know, <laughs> dude, I'm just trying to figure out like how to get a part-time job. And it's like, oh, the pressure of the world. The things you do in this life echo throughout all eternity. And it's like the gladiators running the, the counseling, you know, departments in all the high schools. Or you're a university student and you've just invested thousands and tens of thousands of dollars in your education and you've got this cultural commentary going on back here that goes, yeah, but when you graduate, you better hope the economy is in such a place that you get a job. I mean, real stuff. Where's the rest, though? I'll tell you where the rest is for the children of God. You are united to Christ. You're God's children. You're in his hands. He's going to provide for you. He's going to care for you. He's preeminent. And, and, and through hell or high water, when life catches on fire, his grace is there for you to quiet your heart, constantly recalibrating and bringing you back to that, to that rest. And so when he says that we were created in him, it's not just the past uh, tense act. That's how we talk about it in, in, in English, created. But in the Greek, there's more tenses. This is a, a particular tense called the aorist tense. And what it means is you were created and you're presently created and you are forever going to be created. We don't really talk that way in English, but in the Greek, what Paul is saying is He's sustaining you. He didn't just do this past tense thing. Boop, he created you. Okay, Oof. my work is done. Good luck. You're made of dirt. You're going to return there one day. I hope it goes well for you, right? Like, that's not the picture. What Paul paints is he created you, and he is, sustain- and, and he is creating you, and he will forever create you because you're his child, and you're in his hands. And th- this is this great confidence it gives us grace liberates us to know this because we can enjoy every good thing in our life knowing that god is going to perfect all good things that's what grace does grace isn't erasing the material world it's actually perfecting the material world that god created in the first place and then it's going to eradicate all suffering every sorrowful thing in your life will be removed that's what we've been saying the last four weeks and paul is appealing to the preeminence of christ for that here right he's he's basing this on the fact that christ resurrected from the dead there's a man named Brian Green. Brian, is, Brian Green is an American theoretical physicist, and he's a proponent of string theory. Now, I had to read this 800 times before this morning, uh, and, but the good news is a lot of you are a lot smarter than me, and you're going to actually track with this a lot better than I did. But he's a professor at Columbia University, uh, who's been there since 96, and then in 2008 he founded the World Science Festival. I'm going to read something he said about string theory. Here we go. There are four fundamental forces in the universe, gravity, electromagnetism, and the weak and strong nuclear forces. The behavior of these particles and forces is described with impeccable precision by the standard model, with one notable exception, gravity. For technical reasons, the gravitational force, the most familiar in our everyday lives, has proven very difficult to describe microscopically. And so it's been for many years one of the most important problems in theoretical physics to formulate a quantum theory of gravity. But in the last few decades, string theory has emerged and is the most promising candidate for microscopic theory of gravity. And it is infinitely more ambitious than that. It attempts to provide a complete, unified, and consistent description of the fundamental structure of our universe. And for this reason, it is sometimes quite arrogantly called the theory of everything. End quote. Now, 
Faith and reason are friends. Science is not the enemy of Christian faith. In fact, Christian theology asserts that the modern, I mean, the modern scientific method operates on the premise that the universe can be discovered, that when, when we study it and we apply our intellect and we apply scientific method, we expect to find increasing order. We expect to find increasing logic. We don't expect to find the increasing chaos. And that's why these brilliant minds are kind of exploring these things. The Christian faith asserts that God, Christ, the one who is preeminent, created cosmos from chaos. And so as it relates to us and to our world and to our universe, what Paul is saying in Colossians 1, on the backdrop of Greek philosophy, is this. He's saying that God is not only the one holding the strings, he is saying God is the strings. He's saying Christ is preeminent. We have been created for him. This great force that has sprung everything from a state of not being into being is God. And God has revealed himself in Christ, which is good news for you and I. To return to that grandeur when we got to deal with what we got to deal with on Monday. Because that's where the rest is. In the grace that Christ has done absolutely everything for us to be able to be called God's children. And a lot of people scoff at that. So they'd scoff at Colossians 1. They'd scoff at what I just said. But that's a little like an infant slapping its father in the face. Infants do that all the time. They slap their dad in the face and you say, no, and then the baby's so cute and the baby, no, don't slap your dad. You've seen kids do this. But the only reason a child can slap its father in the face is the father is holding it up that high. So of course we can slap God in the face and deny Colossians 1 and all these things, but that's only because God is holding the universe together. He's the strings. That's what Paul is saying. Is Paul, being, is Paul being arrogant? Is he pulling this out of the sky? No, he's combating all the mysticism and philosophy from the day and appealing to an empty tomb. One who broke the barrier, right, of death, giving us the hope that we will break the barrier of death. This is, this is the hope of the gospel. To borrow again from C.S. Lewis and The Problem of Pain, which was a book he wrote in 1940, he says that a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. So we exist for him, that grand end of creation. And that's why in verse 18, Paul makes a connection and he says the head of creation is the head of the church. That's a very restful place to be. The head of all creation is the head of your life, church. And in his great grace, he loves you and he is with you in your suffering, in your anxiety, in your pain, to quiet your heart, to dial you out of that myopic place of, man, can I make it through today, to be able to find that rest that your soul is actually craving, to say, you know what? My life is in God's hands. So whether you're a high school student saying, can I make it through this day, to sit back, and, uh, sit back at your locker and go, you know what? My life is in God's hands. Whether you're a student or whether you're married, whether it's your children or whether you're retired and you're contemplating you know, the things that cause pain and suffering in your life. When your heart is restless and searching, Colossians 1, Paul dials it back and goes, hold on a second. Don't go past Christ and dethrone him and try and find peace and hope in this thing over here. This is going to disappoint you 10 times out of 10. And that's Paul's appeal. Which leads us to the final thing. And the final thing is, how does any of this benefit us? I mean, how does it benefit us to remember that Christ is ultimate? In verse 21, he describes the people that he reconciled, which is you and me, alienated, hostile, evil. We don't think of ourselves as evil people because compared to our neighbor, we're not evil. But compared to the perfection of Jesus, 
who is all things loving and loved and sacrificed and gave himself for us. We are evil. And, and he saved us when we didn't even know we needed saving. And he came to us in grace even though we didn't deserve it. And he constantly comes towards us even in our doubt and our fear and when we're like those little infants that slap our father in the face. He keeps coming towards his children in grace to quiet our hearts. And so then it, it, he used, Paul uses the word reconciliation. You know, that means that God didn't just forgive you to say, okay, you're forgiven, you're free to go. It means you've been reconciled. His anger, his wrath has been poured out on Christ. It'll never be poured on you. And he says, you're free to come. This is the relationship you have with Christ. It's not, hey, church, when you leave today, make sure you do these five things, and then God's going to love and accept and validate you. No, it's done and finished in Jesus. And now from that place of rest in his grace... We get to go with that great boldness and confidence to live to his glory. In verse 18, when Paul says that you might have preeminence, this isn't an ego thing. God isn't some insecure deity that needs us to worship him so he can be God. He's not insecure in saying, you know, say that I'm supreme, say that I'm supreme, say that, say that Christ alone is, you know, the king of the universe because I really need you to. No, he doesn't. He doesn't need us to do anything. He's not needy. We need to, to be fully human. God created everything from nothing, from sheer grace. He didn't need anything. And now he's recreating us from sheer grace. The head of all creation is, is our head. We, 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 have to, we have to remember this because we're, to borrow a, a line from Dr. Paul Tripp, we're gospel amnesiacs. We, do, we don't forget the details of the gospel, you know, Christ's life, death, resurrection for the atoning of our sin. You know, we don't forget the details of the gospel but we do it the we we fall into that Colossian temptation, and we we forget the implications of the gospel. That because Christ has done it all, because He broke the barrier of death, and one day death is not final for us. What are the implications of that that enable us to have peace and rest in our worry and our anxiety and our frustration and our suffering and our pain? What are the implications of that for there to be that soul rest, that rest that we're all chasing? That's what we need. Otherwise, we'll be tempted not to necessarily deny Christ, but to dethrone him, which, which leads us into a place of great worry and suffering and frustration. You see, the problem is our health, we, ha we have to make Christ preeminent, not because God is on an ego trip, but because our health fades, relationships get strained or broken, we hurt each other, our new toys lose their shine. The revenue this quarter isn't enough because next quarter is coming. Our spouses can't love us enough. Our children can't respect us enough. And our friends aren't loyal enough to be preeminent. So if we set up anything else to be preeminent, we will crush it and it will crush us. Because we have a craving in our heart as human beings walking planet Earth to be fulfilled. And we will put all the weight of that fulfillment on that thing or on that person. And we will crush it because it is incapable to be God. And it will crush us because it will disappoint us every time. And it won't be able to satisfy the rest that only comes in resting in, in Christ alone. So here's the good news as I close. The good news is that the Bible begins with a conclusion. It begins in Genesis 1.31 by God saying, It was very good. And that's the trajectory. That's where we're headed. The Bible begins with that conclusion. And so the Lord of all creation is Lord over us. He is restoring all things to himself. He's restoring us. God created that physical universe by grace, and through Christ, he's going to perfect it by grace. He's perfecting us by grace. And so, to borrow from Robert Weber, the future of the church is ancient. Christian wisdom in a postmodern world can be found in a return to the ancient voices who never fell prey to modern reductionism. 
Right? In other words, to be fully human, to be fully fulfilled, we have to know who we are in relationship to who he is. And who is he? Preeminent. Supreme. Above all things. Made everything for himself. So how do I know myself in relation to that? It's a place of great rest. He's the creature. I'm the creation. I get to just create. <laughs> you know, I, get to be, I get to be dependent. I get to go through this life knowing that you know, God is with me in my pain and in my suffering. And he, will, he alone can quiet my heart. This is the awe-inspiring mystery of the God-man, Jesus Christ. He flung the stars into the heavens with his hands by his power. And he allowed nails to be driven through those hands by his grace. Let's pray.